We will go ahead and get started, and I'm really thankful to be here with you. Thanks for getting up early and joining us. So let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for another day, for the sleep that you gave us last night. You give sleep to those you love. And Lord, thank you that your mercies are new every morning and that your faithfulness is great. Lord, uh, Moses prayed and asked you to satisfy him and to satisfy your people with your loving kindness so they would be glad and rejoice all their days. And Lord, we thank you that because of what your word says, we know that you are a God who is ready and eager to satisfy us with your love for us, your covenant love through the blood of Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you that you are truly satisfying. And I pray that, Lord, because of what you've done for us, um, you we would be ready now by your Holy Spirit to hear what you have for us to hear. I pray that my words would be clear and that you would be glorified this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, go ahead and turn your notebook over. It's where we start every week. We'll review our purpose and our disciplines because we need to remember... Why we're here. Why in the world would you get up at this hour on a Saturday morning? (laughs) And we want to know what we're aiming for and how we plan to get there. So the Wellspring purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live out the gospel, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. So let's talk for a minute about what does it mean to shepherd. We use it as a verb a lot in the church. We have a a verb in this statement, and we talk about shepherding your children's hearts. But if we used it as a noun, we'd be talking about a person who takes care of sheep, right? Just little fuzzy gray things or something. Now, what does a shepherd do? I want to hear from you. What do you think? I know none of you might, well, let's see. If Jamie Siegel's here, I think she has taken care of sheep. Maybe some of you guys have too. (laughs) Her son raised a sheep, I think. Or it was a pig. I don't know. What? Protecting. Yeah, protecting. A shepherd protects. What else does a shepherd do? Provides. Feeds. What else? Leads. Yes. Guides. Good. Good. Anything else? Disciplines. Yeah. Guards, protects, leads, guides. All great descriptions of what a shepherd does. Now, what would be some qualities of a good shepherd? What would set a good shepherd apart from a bad shepherd? He cares for his sheep. Good. That would be important. Committed. Committed. Great word. Anything else? All right. He needs to be committed. He needs to care about the sheep. He needs to be faithful. He needs to be vigilant. He needs to put the interests of the sheep above his own comfort. Now, are sheep always easy to lead? No, that's what I've heard. Do sheep generally know what's good for them? No. Do they have any ability to take care of themselves? No. If I remember right, some of you may have read the book, A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm. Great little book. It's been around for years. But I think in there he said that if a sheep falls over, it can't even get itself back up. It can't even get itself back on its feet. Okay, this is a very dependent 
animal. <laughs> okay, so that's why sheep need a shepherd, right? That's why they need to be shepherded. And so if we want to apply that to our wellspring purpose, let's just insert some of those words we came up with into it. And it would say, the wellspring purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to watchfully, carefully, with commitment, vigilantly, to lead and guide and examine and discipline and provide for and feed and guard their hearts, who they are at the very core, toward Jesus with God's word. See, Jesus is the one our hearts need. And God has given us his word to lead our hearts to Jesus, to guard our hearts with, to examine our hearts with, to discipline our hearts with, to feed our hearts with, and to find our rest in. That's where we draw near to Jesus and find our rest is through his word. But a shepherd doesn't just take care of his sheep once a day, right? I mean, what happens if a shepherd fell asleep? What if he takes a lunch break, doesn't leave somebody else in charge of the sheep? Those sheep are in danger, right? If he doesn't pay attention, who knows what could happen to the sheep? All it takes is a minute for him to be looking the other way, and those sheep are in danger. And the same thing is true with our hearts if we aren't vigilant in our shepherding. So how do we do that the rest of our day? You know, we kind of have the idea that we need to meet with the Lord and his word, and we need to be doing that, and and hopefully that's something that's growing, that it's not just opening the word, but you're meeting with God there, and you're praying about what what you're reading, you're drawing near to him. But what about the rest of the day? Right? Shepherding isn't just a once a day activity. So the rest of the day, when we're tempted, or we're offended, or we're inconvenienced, or maybe when everything is going well, sometimes that's the time when we're least likely to shepherd. It's in that moment, shepherding our hearts back toward Jesus Christ with the word by taking stock of our own thought life. What am I thinking right now? What am I believing right now? And then prayerfully directing those thoughts back to what's true. And what is true? God's word? God's character? The gospel? We can take our, th- our thoughts back to God's holiness and our own sinfulness, and Christ's death, and our life, eternal life, as slaves of God and children of God. Truth that Jesus is coming back. We are going to see him face to face. I don't think about that enough. Because when I do, I get excited. And then life starts happening, and I get distracted from that. But when we ourselves and we practice taking our hearts and our minds back to the Lord and preaching the gospel to ourselves over and over again, it changes us. And we will start to find that someone else's offense is just not quite as significant and as bad as we thought. That maybe our case is not as airtight as we were just sure it was. And we'll start to find that responding with gentleness and grace and patience isn't something that we just have to force, but it's the overflow 
of the power of the gospel at work changing us. And that's why these disciplines are so intertwined with one another. Um, We certainly shepherd our heart to meet with God in a private way. But that is intended to prepare us to shepherd our hearts back to Christ and back to Christ and back to Christ over and over again throughout our day. And often what shows us and reminds us that we need to do that is when our lives rub up against those people we live with. Um, And that's why we have discipline too. Relationships will show us where our hearts are at any given moment. Remember, they're not making you behave the way you are. They're just revealing what was in your heart to begin with, right? And so, as we shepherd our hearts back to Christ, um, then that prepares us to see God's grace in those relationships and in those conflicts. Um, We're ready for God's grace to show us something about our own hearts, and to see our circumstances in a more gospel-centered light. We are ready for God's grace to enable us to love those people around us and to assume the best about them and to be quick to forgive them. We are ready for God's grace to enable us to surrender our time, our schedule, to care for others, to serve them, to listen to them, to be with them, to build them up with God's truth. And then discipline three flows out of that. And ministry becomes less and less something that we do. And it's increasingly just the overflow of our life as discipline one and discipline two weave themselves together into our lives. So that is our Wellspring purpose. Those are our disciplines. That's why you got up so early this morning. And so in committing to Wellspring, we've committed that we want this purpose fulfilled in our lives. And we're committed to pursuing that by gathering together, learning together, doing the assignments, discussing them together, and then meeting with God every day in his word, on a heart level, meeting with him in his word, and doing that through a plan that takes us through the word in a year. And that's our goal. And if it takes you a little longer than that, that's okay. Stick with the goal. Keep your eyes on the goal. There are seasons of life where that make that more difficult and more challenging. But the important point is that we're persevering and we're continuing to pursue meeting with God and looking forward to not missing anything that God has in his word. So that's the value of the plan. It keeps you on track so that eventually you're going to see everything that God's put here. And as soon as you finish, you just can't wait to start over because you know you miss so much. Um, It becomes a real joy. So that brings us to a few announcements, and then we'll jump into our lesson. Um, I want to just point out the next, or tell you a little bit about the upcoming lessons. Um, The next time we meet, it'll be October 29th, that's in two weeks, and Barb Pagel, right in the middle of the room, will be teaching a lesson from Hebrews 4 about salvation's rest. And I love this lesson. I am so excited for it. So be praying for Barb as she prepares that, and (laughs) but we're really we're really thankful, Barb, for you to do that. Um, And then two weeks after that will be November 12th. Just seems like it makes it a little scary to throw out the dates all in a row like that. But that's when we move into discipline two. It'll be a biblical survey of the home, and that's a lesson that I really I really enjoyed 
teaching last year, and I hope I enjoy teaching it this year, too. Then the week after that is the men's retreat, and then Thanksgiving. So there'll be three weeks from November 12th till the time we meet again, which will be December 3rd. And that week we'll have a lesson on Proverbs 14.1, where it contrasts the foolish woman who tears down her house with her own hands and the wise woman who builds up her house. And then one week after that, on December 10th, we're meeting again. Come back one more time, but that won't be a teaching time. That'll be um, us teaching and encouraging one another with what God has taught us through Wellspring so far. And so we'll have breakfast together and, and some sharing time. So plan around those upcoming lessons. Um, and then this is a note about the assignments. I overlooked to point something out at the very beginning, and I apologize. And that is that if you've done Wellspring before, I still need you to do the assignment again. Even though a lot of times the questions are the very same, this is how you can see how you're growing. You can see how you answered those questions last year and how you're answering them this year. So that, that's just going to help you get the most out of what we have for you in Wellspring. And that was really just my oversight that I didn't point that out to begin with. The other thing is if you're like, well, I hope your notebook doesn't look like mine. Because sometimes mine just looks like a file. It just has papers jammed in it. And they're not actually in order. Um, you might want to take all your homework from last year and stick it in one section and put your homework from this year in a different section so you don't accidentally grab the wrong one. So anyway, I'm sorry I didn't mention that sooner. But that is all the announcements, so that takes us to the lesson. Let me just pray again, because I need it. Heavenly Father, I again want to thank you for your grace, for what you've done for us through Jesus Christ, and for giving us your Holy Spirit and giving us your word. Lord, your word is powerful. And I'm so thankful that you tell us in your word that it always accomplishes what you intend. And Lord, there is so much hope in that. Lord, when Paul went to Thessalonica and he delivered the gospel to them, Lord, it wasn't just words. Lord, your Holy Spirit took those words and delivered them with power to the hearts of people and and you used that to draw people to yourself and to give them an understanding of your design for them to be reconciled to you through Jesus Christ. Lord, we have no more ability than Paul. We have far less ability than Paul. And if he was reliant upon your spirit to deliver truth to hearts, then, Lord, so are we. We beg for you to let your spirit come and deliver your truth to our hearts, Lord. Lord, please give us soft hearts. Please give us attentive ears and clear minds to learn and to apply what you want us to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So today's lesson, you know that so far we've been talking about the heart. And there have been some pretty heavy lessons. Especially if this is your first time in Wellspring, you may be feeling like, when are we going to get to the good news? Right? Not only do we have to start from cover to cover and look at all the things that God's Word says about our heart, but then we come back last week and I tell you what a prideful heart you've got. Right? And what a prideful heart I've got. But today, I hope, will be really encouraging as we look at what God's Word says about the condition of a believer's heart as a new creation and then how God's Word calls us to respond and how to live in light of that. 
So I have an illustration for you because I love stories. Okay, on December 7th, 1941, on an otherwise peaceful Sunday morning on a beautiful Hawaiian island, the first wave of Japanese airplanes struck Pearl Harbor. The surprise was complete, and by 1 o'clock that afternoon, those aircraft carriers were already headed back to Japan. And behind them, they left chaos. Over 2,400 people dead, almost 200 planes destroyed, and a crippled U.S. Pacific fleet. Now, interestingly, this attack was not without warning. Um, Aggression on Japan's part was not new. Relations between the U.S. and Japan were strained, and the U.S. had even cracked the Japanese diplomatic code and knew that an attack was imminent. Early warning radar had even spotted incoming Japanese planes before the attack. The private who spotted them said, Hey, Mac, there's a big flight of planes coming in. The whole scope is covered. And the lieutenant on duty, thinking that they were incoming planes from the mainland of the United States, said, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. So the U.S. fleet had its strengths. We had a strong Pacific fleet, and we even knew an attack was coming. But we didn't take the warning seriously. And we didn't prepare, and we didn't respond to what we knew. So, what does that have to do with our heart? Well, we've learned a lot about the heart so far, haven't we? That it fails us, that it is beyond our ability to cleanse, that it's the source of defilement within us, that it's foolish, that it plunges us into further spiritual darkness, that it's easily deceived even when it's at its best, that it is the most excellent deceiver, that I can even deceive my own heart. But we've also said that Christ went to the cross to give us a new heart, right? So what, what does that mean? What's that all about? What difference does that make? And that's what we're going to talk about today. What is that new heart? We're going to look at both the diagram you got when you came in and the table that are color-coded to match. Isn't that cool? Thank you, Cassidy. All right, so um, you probably want to lay them out in front of you so you can look at both of them, maybe one on top and one at the bottom. We'll be looking mostly at the table, but the diagram kind of helps explain what's going on in the table. So these are tools to help us better understand what happens at salvation. They're both describing the same thing. Now, over on the left of both of them, you see where it says unregenerate you. See, before Christ, apart from Christ, we were in an unmixed condition. There was only depravity. We were controlled by sin. We were hostile to God. You can read um, on your table. Just look down that list. We were dead in sins. We walked in sins. We lived in the lusts of our flesh. We indulged the desires of our flesh and our mind. We were children of wrath. We had no hope. We were without God. Now that's a problem, right? And if we were coming up with a solution for that kind of a sin-stained heart, 
we would probably take a heart out of that unmixed, completely sinful condition and put it all the way over on the right side of your picture in an unmixed, holy, obedient condition, right? With no flaws? Isn't that what you'd like? I'd like that. But that's not quite what we are, is it? Not yet. Over there on the right, that describes glorification. And that's what will be in the eternal state. And you can read down the right column of your your table. We're going to be raised with an imperishable body, raised in glory, raised in power, raised in a spiritual body. We're going to bear the image of the heavenly. We'll be imperishable, immortal. Death's sting will be gone. We'll be like Jesus because we will see him just as he is. Good news? Yeah, we need to keep that truth in front of us. And that's what we'd like to be right now, right? But that's not what it means to have a new heart. That's not what it means to be a new creation. Being a new creation is a mixed condition. And so on the diagram, you see those that are mixed between gray and yellow. That's what that's trying to represent. Now, usually when we say new, we think of something clean, something that's unblemished. If I buy a new pair of tennis, I want them to be clean. I want them to smell good. I want them to have good support. I don't want them to be broken down and scuffed up. That's why I'm buying new ones. But that's not what new means when we talk about the new heart or being a new creation. Remember when we first started talking about the heart, we we realized that biblically the heart isn't just a part of us. It's not... You know, honestly, when I started studying about the heart to, to teach for Wellspring, I realized my understanding of the heart wasn't biblical. I kind of had this idea that it was just a heart transplant. Took out the old heart, gave me the new heart. And the new heart, it was, it was in there, and it was nice and clean. And it was pure, and it was undefiled. And if that were true, I wouldn't need to spend so much time shepherding my heart, would it? But God's Word tells us that our heart, that's just a way that he describes who we are at the very core, it's our, it's our inner self. And so we are new. The old is gone, and the new has these new capacities, these new capacities to love God. We're going to look at all those today, but it's different than what we're going to be when we're glorified. Okay, I hope that's helpful. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Okay, well, as we look at the condition of the new creation of a believer as, a, as having a mixed condition, like the Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor, we're going to see that we have some strengths, and we're going to see that we have some weaknesses. We're going to look at our condition as believers, both the strengths and the weaknesses, because we, too, are prone to think like that lieutenant, don't worry about it. See, we know a lot about our condition, but we don't always respond to it. So today, as we work our way through these tables, um, our goal is to more accurately understand what God says about our mixed condition. And then to be motivated, as a result, to earnestly participate in sanctification so that we're increasingly transformed into the image of Christ. So go ahead and turn to Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. Um, We're going to talk about a lot of verses today. I'm not going to have you look up all of them, but it really is helpful to be able to look at it in your own Bible. So on your table, in the skinny column, 
between unregenerate you and the positional realities, it says an event accomplished by God. Regeneration. Regeneration is when God makes us alive spiritually. So I'm going to read from Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. See, God is the one at work in making us alive. He is motivated by the richness of his grace and by his great love with which he chose to love us. He made us alive together with Christ. Because of him, our sins are forgiven and we have new life and we have a new heart. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that we are a new creature. That the old things have passed away. So for the believer, what's over on the left column is gone. That's good news. When a person is regenerated, that mean, that's the same thing as being born again or being made alive spiritually. She receives the gift of faith, which enables her to repent and believe the gospel. So now she's a new creation. And we said a minute ago that the new creation has a mixed condition. And that's the whole center of your table, kind of the gray-yellow color there. And on your diagram, it's the gray and yellow circles. So on our table, you can see we've broken down the mixed condition into three categories. And the first is positional realities. You could also, in fact, why don't you write in next to positional realities, gospel realities. These describe things that are true when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And they're always true from conversion onward. These are a result of regeneration. These happen in the life of a believer because of the gospel. And so if you've been around Grace Bible Church for a while, you've heard us talk about gospel realities. Scott um, covered a bunch of these in a recent sermon. And so they might be familiar but they can't be too familiar. We, we really need to just persevere in working them into our thinking and into our praying, um, in preaching these to our hearts, because as we feed on these truths, it just grows our awe of who our God is. Now, a parenthetical note about this table is it is not exhaustive. It's exhausting, maybe, but it's not exhaustive. <laughs> There's plenty more that could be added to it. It's um, not even necessarily very systematic in the way each column within a column is organized, but it's a tool. It's just a tool to help us get our minds around what does God's word tell us about our mixed condition as new creations, as, as people who have been born again. All right, so use it as a tool and add to it and improve it and send it back to me. All right, at the top of the positional realities column, you'll see Romans 1.17 and Philippians 3.9. Both of these verses describe the gospel in terms of a righteousness that comes from God. Romans 1.17 says that in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness which is by faith from first to last. Now turn over to Philippians 3 with me. Paul is describing why he counts all things to be lost. 
and he points to the same righteousness that's by faith. Look at verse 7. He says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I've counted as, excuse me, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Now here is where he talks about why he wants to be found in Christ. Uh, why he counts all things to be rubbish and why he has suffered the loss of all things. He says, may, that, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him. See, Paul is saying that God has imputed Christ's righteousness to us. He judges us based on Christ's sinless record. Could you hear in Paul's words how precious these truths are to him? It's because of this righteousness that he can know Christ. That's his passion. It's what drives him. Is that precious to you? That in Christ, a righteousness from God is revealed? A righteousness that's by faith? It's not dependent upon you? Does it drive you to know Christ? See, I want that to drive me. I want that to be what drives me. We need to beg God to soften our hearts so that we never stop being impacted by what Christ has done for us. So we never forget that all God did, he did to reconcile us to himself, to make us right with himself, to remove the barrier that our sin put up between us and him. He wants us to know him. Now moving on down your table, you see Colossians 3.12, which tells us we are holy and loved by God. God has poured out his affections on us. And then the next one is from Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1.5 says he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Don't you just love how affectionate our God is that he's kind? We are his beloved adopted children. He's brought us into his own family. Now, I'm going to read through some more of these in this column, and I want you just to listen. You have the references there on the table, but just stop and listen to these gospel realities. Let them just impact your heart and impact your mind and show you how much your God loves you. God's Holy Spirit indwells us. We are members of Christ's body. Christ himself is our head. We have God's commitment to complete the work he has begun in us. We have God's promise to resurrect us, to give us resurrection bodies. We have confident access to God. We are under grace, not under law. We are forgiven. We're redeemed. We are washed and set apart 
and justified. There is no condemnation or wrath for the believer. All because of what Christ has done on the cross. So those are all positional realities, gospel realities. Go ahead and turn in your Bible to 1 Peter 2.2. We're going to take a look now um, at many new strengths that God's word describes for the believer. That's the middle column on your table. These are new abilities and desires and motivations in the believer. Unregenerate you, before you came to Christ, had no desire or ability for these things. But believers do. Sorry, I can't talk and look up Bible verses at the same time here. God called, and so anyway, this middle column are the things that God has called us and equipped us to participate in. Um, so it's, it's a lot like a newborn baby. When a baby's born, she has the family name, and she's loved, and she's welcomed in. But, you know, she's going to, yeah, like her, like Reagan. We love you, Reagan. But you know what? Reagan's going to have to put out some effort to learn how to walk, right? And to learn how to talk and to grow up. There are things that she has to participate in in order to grow up and mature. We're so glad Reagan's here. Congratulations, baby. That was awesome. See, I knew we needed a little extra visual aid. Just, oh, look at her. Isn't she precious? What a blessing. Okay. So we're going to look at some of these verses then in our middle column. And 1 Peter 2, 2. I could have Amy teach this part of the lesson. It says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that, it, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. See, believers, we are commanded to long for God's word. So that, it gives us the reason right here, by it we'll grow in our salvation. Now, why does a baby long for milk? It's hungry, right? It's the only thing that will satisfy her or sustain her. And when we embrace that God's provision for our hearts is his word, that it's the only thing that will satisfy us, that it's the only thing that will sustain us, it's the only thing that will make us grow, then we will choose to long for his word. Not just to nibble at it, but to long for it, to hunger for it, because that's where we meet with God. Go ahead and uh, turn on over to John 14:21. We're going to look at some more ways that God gives us to participate in our growth. So John 14:21 is in that next box down that says obedience. See, God has not only called us to obey, but through the gospel he enables us to obey because he set us free from sin. We're not slaves to sin anymore. We're not slaves to ourselves and to our own will and to our own wants and to our own emotions. Obedience is evidence that we're born again. It's proof that we love Jesus. John 14:21 says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. See, if we're going to keep his commands, we need to know them, don't we? We need to long for this word, hunger for this word. 
Um, and then in Philippians 2.12, um, Paul says this about the Philippians' obedience. He says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. See, obedience is how believers show that they love Jesus, and it's how they participate in working out their salvation. See, it's easy to hear that and think, uh-oh, I better get with it. I better ramp up my obedience here, right? I better get with the program. Um, but I want you not to forget that we just looked at a whole column of gospel realities, of what's true in the life of a believer because of what Christ has done. And if you go back and look in your New Testament, you look in Colossians 3, Ephesians 4, 2 Peter 1, Titus 2 and 3, they're probably just like just about every chapter in the New Testament. Those are just the ones I'm familiar with off the top of my head. But you'll find that commands are embedded with the gospel. They're right there. They're like this. You'll see a couple of verses of instruction say, because of what Christ has done for you, because Christ has forgiven you as newborn babies. It's, it's all about who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us that motivates the obedience and, and enables the obedience. These commands were never designed to be something that we take and grab hold of and run off, run off and take care of them on our own, in our own strength, in our own flesh. That's why Paul warned the Galatians in Galatians 3.3. He said, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And the obvious answer there is no. That's not our source of strength for obedience. We obey as ones who are alive in Christ. He is our life. He is our master. So, since obedience is in this column of new strengths and abilities that a believer has, that means every new covenant command belongs in this column. God has commanded and equipped us to obey every commandment that's been given in Christ. Every, everything we find after back in the New Testament here. But sometimes we live... We think like we don't believe that. You know, there can be areas of our lives where we just get comfortable with disobedience, where we allow ourselves to think that we can't obey when really we just won't, where we really just won't obey. We might just think it's too hard. (laughs) It's too hard. But that's not what God's word says. 1 John 5, 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. They're not. See, we need to renew our minds with what's true. And that's what's true. It's not burdensome. So moving down the column, we'll skip over 2 Corinthians 5, 14. You can look at that on your own. That talks about our motivation for obeying. Um, being the love of Christ. But we're going to move on to the next one. We see love for God. And we've already seen that love is intertwined with obedience. See, when we feed our love for God, our obedience will grow. Because it's awfully hard to love something that the one you adore hates. See, it's hard to love sin when you love and adore the one who hates sin, who died for that sin. So I hope this is helping to get a fresh understanding of what Christ accomplished on the cross, how that's fleshed out 
in how we actually live. So not only are those grace realities ours, those positional realities over in the left column under the mixed condition, but also these new abilities to participate in our sanctification. See, God has chosen us and enabled us to grow and to obey and to love him. Now, we most often think of these things as commands, and they are. But I want you to think about what grace God has given in enabling us to obey his commands. See, we can now love our neighbor, and we can love our enemies. We can forgive. We can repent. We can be thankful. We can lay aside falsehood and speak truthfully. We can be diligent. We can be humble. And we can do it for the right motives. We no longer need to obey from a fear of punishment or to get something we want because we're afraid of what someone's going to think about us. See, we can obey because God is God and he has a right to rule in our lives and because God has made us a new creation and he wants us to please him and we want to please him as new creations. And we can obey because he's given us his own Holy Spirit to live in us. You have some verses in your chart there from Galatians 5 that talk about the enabling of the Holy Spirit to obey. But now I want you to look at 1 Timothy 1.15. Now this is perhaps one of the most essential blessings God gives us in salvation. This is the ability to see ourselves accurately. So the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Foremost of all. Those are the Apostle Paul's words. He's the guy who wrote a whole bunch of our New Testament. He laid down his life to make the gospel known to establish the church throughout the Roman Empire, the Apostle Paul declares himself to be the foremost sinner. What about me? So, do you see there's a certain paradox? On one hand, the believer is growing in obedience and holiness, and on the other hand, she's seeing more and more of her own sinfulness. But that's, that's what it's like, isn't it? That's the reality of the Christian life. Now, it may seem strange to consider the ability to see our own sinfulness as a strength. You might think I'd put that as a weakness. But if we don't see our own sinfulness, how can we treasure the gospel? How can we understand why it was important that Christ died? We read it in 1 Timothy 1.15. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Believers, we need to thank God that he's enabled us to see our own sinfulness. And we need to cry out to him to see it more. Because only in understanding, like Paul did, that we are foremost sinners, will we understand that when we come to God, we're not doing him a favor. We're not earning points for ourselves. See, we can't add anything to what Christ has already done for us on the cross. See, when we understand that we are the foremost sinner, then we start to understand how desperate we are 
for God. And you know what? The better we get this, the less we need an accountability partner to ask us how we're doing with getting in the Word, with meeting with God there. And the less you have to wonder about how I'm doing in my prayer life. Because if I get, if you get, if we get that we are the foremost sinner, we're going to cling to Jesus like a drowning man clings to a life raft. Nothing will peel us away from him. So we've looked at two aspects of our mixed condition. First, those positional realities, and then these new strengths and abilities that God has given us to participate in the process of sanctification. But remember the Pearl Harbor analogy. It wasn't enough that they knew their strengths. They weren't prepared to use their strengths because they hadn't taken the threats seriously. So now we're going to look at some threats. In the next column, we'll identify some of our own weaknesses, even as believers. Now, that might sound obvious. No one here would try to convince anyone else that we don't have some weaknesses, that we don't have some struggles with sin. But even though we know it, we're not always responsive to it. We're not always aggressive in our battle with it. Like that lieutenant at Pearl Harbor who dismissed the radar with all those incoming Japanese planes saying, don't worry about it. You know, sometimes we take the grace of God for granted and we look at our weaknesses and we think, don't worry about it. That's just the way I am. Well, yeah, it's the kind of family I grew up in. I was born that way. You were born that way. <laughs> but you were born again not to be that way anymore. Okay, go ahead and turn to Colossians 2.8. We're going to look at some of these weaknesses, not so that we worry about them, but rather, as it says up at the top of your um, table in Romans 12.3, so that we'll have sound judgment about who we are. We need to understand our weaknesses so we can respond to them biblically with the gospel and with all the tools God has given us for growing in holiness. So we're on the table. We're working our way down the weaknesses column. And you can see there in the tan box that it says God still sees us as righteous through our standing in Christ. So it's important that we do not forget that. Um, these weaknesses don't negate Uh, what God has done for us in justifying us, and they don't negate the enabling grace he has given us to participate in our sanctification. But we still need to understand this part of our mixed condition. So let's read Colossians 2.8. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. See, Paul had to warn the Colossians not to be deceived. See, they weren't immune to that just because they were new creations. And we aren't either. See, the world's way of thinking, the world's principles, the world's traditions can be captivating. Kind of draw us in, don't they? And we don't fight the tendency by saying, don't worry about it. See, Paul commands something very intentional here. Take action. See to it that this doesn't happen to you. In 1 Peter 1.13, Peter describes the fight this way. Prepare your minds for action. Prepare your mind. Be zealous 
for biblical thinking. No matter where you're reading in scripture, look for what it tells you about who God is, about his character. Look for what it says about sin. Look for how it describes those who love God and those who don't. And then you see the reference for 2 Corinthians 10.5 there. Um, It tells us to take our thoughts captive to obedience to Christ. So as we take stock of our own thoughts, we need to identify those that are not consistent with what we've learned in God's word, that are not consistent with God's character, that are not consistent with what we know is true about someone who loves God. And we need to get rid of them. Throw them out if they're not consistent with God's word. Don't believe those lies. Don't give them any room to, to get comfortable. Then Philippians 4.8 tells us what we replace those thoughts with. Whatever is true, what's honorable, what's right, what's pure, what's lovely, what's excellent, what's praiseworthy. So those, we've got a lot of verses in that box. Those verses are just helpful for um, obeying Paul's admonition not to be deceived, not to be taken captive by worldly thinking. Now, in addition to these warnings against being deceived, the book of Galatians warns against legalism. It also warns against abusing our freedom. 1 John 2 warns believers against loving the world. 2 Peter 2 believes, uh, warns believers against false teachers. The letters to the churches in Revelation show people in the church who have left their first love, who are involved in immorality, who are self-confident and proud. See, we need to understand our vulnerability. You know, if you've been around children, you know that one of our big, one of the biggest concerns is what they don't understand. See, children tend to have a very inaccurate understanding of their own abilities. They don't assess accurately what they can handle. But we have to ask ourselves, do we? Do we assume that because we're Christians, we can handle temptation? That we won't be deceived? We won't be worldly? We won't be legalistic. See, we, that's why we need these truths. We need to understand what God's word says so that we're not deceived, so that we have a biblical picture of who we are in Christ. See, we do have the ability to resist temptation, but not in our own strength. Our bodies are weak flesh. Our spiritual growth and holiness is dependent upon reliance on Christ and his spirit and his word, not ourselves. So we're going to go ahead and take a break there. When we come back, we'll move on and talk about sanctification. How do we respond to what we've learned about our condition as new creations? So take a little break. Okay, so um, you can go ahead and pull out your sanctification table now. We have taken a look at what we used to be. We've taken a look at what we will be. We've seen that we live in bodies of weak flesh, that we are in a mixed condition. We are new creations. And we are enabled by God to love God, to obey him, to grow in our knowledge of him. But we're weak. We're still easily deceived. We're still easily tempted. So how do we respond? Well, we don't want to despair, but we don't want to be indifferent 
or complacent either. We don't want to take an unbiblical view of grace that says my weaknesses and my sin really aren't anything to worry about. We can't do that. So first, we flee to the cross. See, understanding our mixed condition drives us to the gospel, to treasure more and more and more what Christ has done for us and to preach it to ourselves more. But is there anything else? What does it look like to be responsive to this mixed condition we're in? How is a believer sanctified? So that's why we have another table to look at today. As with the first table, it has way more information than what, we're, than what we'll cover together, but it's here for a resource for you. Uh, we'll use the tables in completing our assignment for this week, for the next class, but I encourage you not to file them away. It might be really helpful to keep them tucked in, in your Bible and to go back and review from time to time. From time to time, they can um, encourage you and even get you jump started in your prayer time, just praising God for what He's done. So, as we move on to the sanctification table, we have to ask, well, what is sanctification? Well, it's the process of a believer becoming more like Christ, of growing in holiness. Up at the top of the table, you see Hebrews 12:14. Pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. We're commanded to pursue sanctification. And pursue is an action. We pursue things that really matter to us. Pursue has a sense of drive and energy and priority. It means that there are going to be some things that we don't pursue so that we can pursue wholeheartedly the things that are most important to us. Now sometimes I'm tempted to wish that sanctification was just something that happened to me. You know, you kind of just stick my sanctification in the microwave and push a button and walk away and come back and it's all done, right? Wouldn't that be great? (laughs) You know, so I can go go take care of life and, and God will take care of my sanctification. But see, God says sanctification is something that's active. It's something to be pursued by us. God is calling us to put our drive and our energy and our priority into our pursuit of holiness. Now, below Hebrews 12:14 on your table, you see that we have two questions. And the first one is, who sanctifies the believer? And then the second one is, how is the believer sanctified? Or we could say that differently. We could say, what are God's ongoing means of grace for sanctification? Now, to answer the first question, God's word identifies each person of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as active in our sanctification. See, sanctification is important to God. And we can take heart from that. See, he's working for our sanctification, too. For the second question, we've divided it to see the different means of grace through which God works for our sanctification. You can see first that we have a column with God's direct involvement. And then we have a column that talks about how the word sanctifies. And then the third column is how the body of Christ is used to sanctify the believer. And then finally, the believer's responsibility for her own sanctification. 
turn to Romans 8, 28, and 29. You'll see that verse near the top of the first column under God's direct involvement. It's the box that says all things. <clears throat> Romans 8, 28, and 29 say, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now the first verse here is very familiar. But did you ever realize that the very next verse explains exactly what God's purpose is in working all things together for good? How he defines good? It's to conform us to the image of his son. To make us more like Jesus. That's what's good. So in the broadest sense, everything is God's tool for our sanctification. It's God's tool to work for our good, which is to make us more like Christ. So that includes, you can see on your table there, trials, afflictions, discipline, pruning. We need to believe that. We need to remember right in the middle of the trial that God is working for our good and that his working for our good includes difficulties. They're often his tool of choice. Trials are hard, but God is always trustworthy. He is never out of control. He's always good. He always loves his children. Where do you need to decide that you will trust God? That you will believe he is acting for your good? Take a moment. Just think about it. Can you think of some place? Do you need to confess the sin of unbelief to God? And cry out to him and ask him to help your unbelief. You know, there was a man who responded to Jesus that way in Mark 9:24. He said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. See, I love that. There's just this earnestness. There's this desire to believe and yet this recognition. I can't even believe if you don't help me. What difficulty will you thank God for because of what he promises to do in your life through it? Will you obediently choose to consider it all joy when you face trials? See, James 1, 2 through 4 says, We can know that the testing of our faith produces endurance, and that endurance has its perfect results, so that we may be perfect and complete, not lacking anything. Now, some of you may know a man here at Grace Bible Church by the name of Dave Moore. I've known Dave a really long time. He actually did Kate's baby dedication. And he is a godly man, and he is a man who has suffered from physical pain for as long as I've known him. Now, years ago, I called his house, and he answered the phone, and he, his voice sounded weak, and so I asked him if he was having a bad day. And he said, oh, no, there aren't bad days, because they're all from the Lord. He said, some days are just harder than others. And Dave, years later, still living in a very weak, pain-ridden body, is still known as a man of joy. 
See, and that can be our testimony. If our lives, if we, if we yield them to God's hand to sanctify us, even through every hard day. Well, that brings us to our next column, which is the word. And we have already spent a lot of time in Wellspring looking at God's design for our heart to be united with his word. Now, this is just a sample, but look at some of the specific things that God's word does to sanctify us. It builds us up. It washes us. It teaches, rebukes, corrects, trains. It equips us for good works. It nourishes us. And it's what we've been talking about every week in Wellspring. It's where we go to meet with God, with our God. And there's nothing that grows holiness more than being with the one who is holy. So that's all we're going to spend on the word because we've covered that a lot in Wellspring. But we're going to move on now and look at the third column, which talks about the role of the body in sanctification. Turn over to Colossians 4. Scripture is full of one another's. And by that, I mean instructions on how we are to relate to one another in the body of Christ. And all of these are important for both our own sanctification as well as for the sanctification of others. And one that's very easy to neglect is prayer. So I'm going to read from Colossians 4, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. See, believers, we, like Epaphras, have a role in the sanctification of others. See, Epaphras was always laboring earnestly in his prayers for the believers in Colossae. Those words are so loaded. Always. He never quit. Laboring. Toiling. With all his might. Earnestly. See, he was praying with sobriety. He saw the weightiness of what he was given to do in praying for them. And I ask myself, does that describe my prayers? I have to say, ouch. I've got a ways to go. Earlier in the same chapter, Paul exhorted the Colossians to be praying for him. Uh, In verse 2, he says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I speak. Paul instructed the believers to devote themselves to prayer because they had a role in his ministry. And he doesn't just say pray. He tells them how to pray. Devote yourselves. Keep alert. Have a thankful attitude. Now, Scripture commands us to pray without ceasing. That's in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. It's cultivating an ongoing awareness of the nearness of God, laying all of our thoughts before him throughout our day. And that's good. That's good. That's a great way to shepherd your heart. But that's not what devoted to prayer means. See, that's not the same kind of prayer. 
Devotion means to be faithful, to give undivided attention and effort and affection. We talk about being a devoted friend or devoted mother, being devoted to exercise maybe, or a favorite hobby. It's something we set aside time for and we plan for. It has a priority. See, that doesn't always describe my prayer life. But we need to be devoted to prayer. Prayer needs to have priority. For me, if I don't plan for it, if I don't decide to pray, when I'm going to pray, sometimes how I'm going to pray, it doesn't happen. Now, this can be a difficult discipline for many of us. But how often do we acknowledge that if we neglect prayer, we're being disobedient? It's sin. So how will you obey this command? See, when we do obey, we are participating not only in our own sanctification, but also in the sanctification of others and participating in their ministry. Now back on the table, you'll see after Pray for Believers, a box underneath that that says Loving Union with the Body, with a reference to Ephesians 4. So go ahead and turn there now, Ephesians 4.11. God has used this passage to really transform my understanding of his church, I'm sorry, of his heart for his church, for us as a body of Christ. So Paul starts with describing some of the ways that believers are gifted by Jesus. And this is chapter 4, verse 11. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. See, Jesus has some very specific things in mind with these gifts that he gives to believers. We are to use the abilities to equip others to serve, who in turn then also build up the body of Christ. Then in verse 14, as a result, we're no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. See, we need to pay attention to this. How many times have we seen warnings against being deceived? But when the body is growing together and serving one another, here's what happens to protect against that deceit. Verse six, let's see, verse 15, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I have to tell you, when I first understood this passage, it changed my life. It changed my life. You know, up until that point, I had been in church all my life. Even when I was in really sinful seasons of my life, I was still in church. I just, you know, was a, I'm a recovering legalist, right? You know, it was the right thing to do, so I was in church. But what I didn't realize that this passage exposed was that I had, in my own heart, kind of reserved the right to not really be part of the body. I was in the body, 
But I sort of looked at myself as separate. Well, they're the, it's those guys over there. But, you know, I don't have to really connect. I can just show up. And I can care for other people, but I don't really need to show anybody my heart. This passage completely changed that. I realize it's not optional. It's not up to me because this is God's design for displaying Christ as we care for one another and as we help each other grow together. See, Christ causes our growth through these relationships with one another in the body. See, it's, it's amazing. It's just so great. There's just no way we can grow the same without those connections in the body of Christ. See, each part has to be working properly. And when we all do this, and we live this way with each other, then we will grow in our knowledge of Jesus. We will mature, and we'll be protected. As we speak the truth in love to one another and serve one another, the body will be built up in love, and Christ will be more fully displayed. See, God has chosen to use the body as one of his primary means to grow us in our sanctification. So what are some of the other one, another, other one another's that God uses to sanctify us and build up the church? Now here are a few. You've got them in your column. They're right underneath loving union in your table. We prefer one another. Teach and admonish one another. Build up one another. Encourage one another. We meet together, spur one another on toward love and good deeds. See, that's why it's important for us to come together like this, to be committed to a small group, to be faithful in gathering together for worship and teaching on Sunday, for serving. See, we have to move past doing what we feel like, what meets my needs, and obediently participate in what God has said that he wants to use to grow us, and protect us and to display the fullness of Christ in the church. It's just great. I just hope you love the church. It's just it's just so awesome to see the church the way God does, to love it like he loves it. It's it's really rich, it's really sweet. All right. That brings us to our last column about the believer. Go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy 2.22. A lot of these are familiar, and they overlap with what we've already seen today. So, for example, you see there, um, hold fast to the word. Because it's not going to sanctify us if we don't know it, right? But we've talked about the word. We see living in peaceful unity with the body of Christ and praying. So I want to highlight a couple that might be a little less familiar. Okay, there it is. Still right where I left it. Okay, 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. See, there you see that reference again to life with the body, don't you? Um you can see also in your chart that there are other verses that warn believers to flee the love of money, to flee discontentment, to flee immorality, to flee idolatry. See, we're commanded to flee. It's not a casual stroll. See, fleeing is what we do when we are in imminent danger. We drop everything and we run. 
See, temptation places us in that kind of imminent danger. So we flee, and then what do we pursue instead? Well, the verse tells us, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, if I were to ask you what you need to set aside in order to pursue righteousness, in order to pursue faith, to pursue love, to pursue peace, is there something that pops in your mind right away? <laughs> Pretty much covers it, huh? You know, maybe there's something specific that takes a lot of your time, maybe more time than it deserves. Maybe something that preoccupies your mind. Could be bitterness, anger, unforgiveness. How about worry? See, there might be something you need to turn off, like your phone, your computer until you have daily turned on your pursuit of Christ by meeting with God in his word and prayer. You know, if there is something particularly that came to mind, jot it down. Whatever it is, that first thing that came to mind, jot it down and pray about it. Will you set it aside to pursue a greater love for God? See, God has given us this responsibility. God's design is for us to flee sin to flee temptation, to flee distraction and pursue him, to pursue holiness. Now, we like focusing on the fact that salvation and sanctification is a work of God, and it is. But we can't ignore God's command, his design for us to participate. That's one of his means for accomplishing our sanctification. So today, we've looked at how the New Testament describes us as new creations. We have a new identity that's in a mixed condition. We have new desires, new abilities, and we also have an increasing understanding of just how weak we really are. God, in his goodness, has provided abundant means for living as new creations. And our responsibility is to make use of the means of grace that he's provided for sanctification. And as we do that, as we pursue sanctification, becoming more holy, becoming more like Jesus, we will be effective instruments in God's hands to help others grow, and we're going to be ready to meet Jesus face-to-face when he comes with those resurrection bodies we talked about at the beginning. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, I really want to pray that you would help each of us draw near to you. Lord, to cry out to you with our inability, with our unbelief, and to earnestly and fervently flee from all that would hold us back from pursuing more of you. Lord, we know that when we pursue you, the overflow of that will be a growth in holiness. It will be more obedience. Thank you so much, Father, that you are committed. You've promised to finish the work, to complete the work that you have begun in the lives of your children. Father, as we prepare to go to discussion groups, I pray that you would help each one of us to have a bigger understanding of your design to use us in one another's lives there. Lord, help us to make the most of that time, to really benefit from what one another shares, to be ready to share ourselves for the benefit of others. In Jesus' name, amen.